live from a Russian tank on the Ukrainian border that is <clears throat> only here for peaceful purposes. This is Podlithical Risk. Welcome to episode eight of Podlithical Risk. Is that right? I think that's right. <laughs> I think every time we do this, we have to ask ourselves what number it is. Episode of Podlithical Risk. Aaron Menevuk, how are you? Well, Stephen Waking, yourself? Very well, thank you. Good, and good. with us is... Paul D. Shinkman, U.S. News and World Report. <laughs> I'm just going to make him say it. Yeah. We did it, guys. We, we finally that's did it. Right. We finally, yeah, we, we're all here. We tweeted about having a special guest, what, a month and a half ago? And we followed up with a special guest. It just wasn't the special guest we had originally intended. Yeah. And he's here now with us, though, thankfully. Um, I think we met about two years ago. I think it was right, about yeah. March, right, of 2012. We were, I don't remember where it was held, but we were at the Washington Institute of Penuries Policy, sort of. I think it was 2013. I don't, 2013. Want, to, I don't want to start rewriting history, but I'm pretty well, sure. Well, Chuck Hagel was speaking. That's why we're all there. You're right. So it was so about 18 months yeah. ago, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, at one of those hotels in the West End downtown. Mm -hmm. It was big. There was some food. I remember about that much. There was a lot of food. A lot of food. Good wine. And we bonded over Macklemore. Remember that? That's right. Yeah. That That's was, right. That was, that was the first uh, in-depth right. topic of conversation. Yeah. I'm blacking on this. Really? But uh, You guys had a lot to drink. By yeah, the there was a lot of wine on the table. And yeah. I'm also from the wrong part of the world to be excited about Macklemore as well. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yes, so yeah, and then since then we've been we've been trying to get Paul on the show, mm -hmm. uh, and weather and immune systems um, have have prevented that human and canine immune system. <laughs> <laughs> um, but finally, we've managed we've managed to do so. We're very mm -hmm. we're very excited. To have the sun's you. out, flowers are blooming. Here we are, mm -hmm. Here we are. Until, until it stops snowing. <laughs> until it stops snowing again. That's right. Yeah. Um, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am the national security reporter at U.S. News and World Report. You may have heard about it. We enjoy ranking things and <laughs> having had been a magazine back in the day, and that sort of brings us to where we are now, well-funded online news organization trying to figure out what it is that we're, that we're doing here. But it's, it's a lot of fun. I think I have the best beat in the business. And so I, I was hired to I'm, – I'm paid to cover national security and defense that often bleeds into foreign policy and international affairs. So basically, whenever there are angry people or explosions worldwide, that's where you find my reporting. That's pretty much the best job. It's is, is pretty good job. Although I will say, I think you might have had the second best job in reporting uh -huh. prior, which is WTOP. I used to be. That's right. Oh, I am were you a in proud the veteran of the yeah. Glass and Close Nose oh Center, WTOP. Which is, I have to say, my absolute favorite Absolute favorite radio station in the D.C. metro area. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe anywhere. I've been behind the curtain. I've been behind the glass and closed <laughs> curtain. Yeah. To me, in terms of local news uh, it, situations, there's really there's that. Yeah. Then there's Amelia Siegel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> those are really, as far as I'm concerned, those are the two perks of living mm -hmm. in the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the glass and closed nerve center, so I probably shouldn't be giving this away, but given that it's just the three of us here. 
Uh, this is off the record. Uh, totally off the record, and then we've turned off all listening devices. The Glass Enclosed Nerve Center was a uh, a little sort of fun kind of jingle that the executive editor came up with when there was no such thing in the newsroom. And enough people came to visit the newsroom to go see what was going on and were just completely shattered to find out that there was no glass enclosed nerve center, that when they redesigned the newsroom, they actually put up a big glass wall to separate the main wow. broadcast studio wow. from from the bullpen. So now it is tried and true, glass enclosed nerve center. Because, yeah, as we found live from a nondescript apartment building in Washington, D.C. or Arlington, it's, it's not really much of a, a draw. No. No one's been very excited by that. No, actually, maybe we should come up with some facade for our... Well, to be from. fair, didn't the Watergate exchanges go down at a nondescript garage in Arlington? Yes. I'm pretty sure yeah, it did. Yeah. You're yeah. kind of tapping into that sort of mystique. All sorts of things <laughs> happen at nondescript garages. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yeah. That's right. Mostly muggy, well, as, but, as yeah. a, uh, an FX original series, The Americans mm. fan... Love that show. Yeah, the the nondescriptness in that show is they do, is, yeah. is, 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 key, is elemental, yeah. is key, right, to a lot of the scenes. That's absolutely true. I was uh, talking to my fiancé about this. I think that they are the best show about D.C., not filmed in D.C., but makes it look like D.C. Mm-hmm. the best. Yeah. I think a lot of the other ones that jump to the Baltimore subway and try to pretend it's the Metro yeah. don't quite My favorite it, was but... always um, Bones. Oh, I've never seen that. It's... Yeah, me neither. It... It's nonsense, and uh, mostly it's nonsense because, like, there's an idea that it's supposed to be DC, and then they're just palm trees. <laughs> and you can sure. see a bunch of guys like with right. their shirts off. Wow. Well, I, I will say this. So, and I don't want to give anything away. Well, I, I guess I'm only giving away if you haven't seen the. I know, I'm blanking on which episode it is. If it's past, is it House four? Cards? No, no, no. no. I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Back to the American. If it's okay. past the episode four, I'm going to stop you. It's past episode four. Yeah, then I'm going to. Well, it, yeah. whatever. I'll I'll be I'll be completely nondescript about it, being that that's the point of this whole. There are some Russians and then there's some sex. Well, there's a scene that hashtag the Cold War. Hashtag the Cold War, right? <laughs> hashtag Ukraine Russia 2014. Uh, yeah. Um. No, so in, in one of the episodes, they're supposedly on the metro line, on the green line, out to Branch, mm-hmm. Branch Avenue, right? And it's it is you know. It is the 70s. I know the trains look different, but I cannot imagine that having been what the Metro looked like even then. I don't know what they shot it on. Was it on time, for example? Is that, well, what, well, is that what threw you yeah, off? Sun, there wasn't, right. there it was wasn't on time. It was smooth. People right. looked happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they didn't feel ripped off. The heating and or air conditioning was working the way it was supposed to. That's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, actually, so let, let's get a bit into this. Um you know, the, the really... Favorite what, Metro stops. That's right. Favorite Metro stops. I get it. Well, it's it's my home stop, but Roslyn is... Awesome. Just with that long, the escalator. long escalator. Yeah. It's very artistic. Yeah. You feel like you're in a Kubrick movie when you're going up that, mm-hmm. you know? like. I feel that about most aspects of DC, but yes, yeah, well, there's that, <laughs> I had suppose. any experience yeah. being on the Metro. I have a sense that that was not what you were going for when you... It, it was not, actually. Well, so I'm curious. So we have some questions for Paul. Um... Uh, because of who he is, what he does, and how he grew up. So, for those who don't know, Paul is a child of a foreign service family. That's right. How many how many countries did you grow up in? So we did. Uh, so we moved. When I when I tallied it up, all told, we moved thirteen times before I went to college. But a lot of that was moving within countries. So that was like mm-hmm. moving house to house or different mm-hmm. neighborhoods or that kind of thing. Our main posts were in. I was born in Germany while we were living in Belgrade in what used to be Yugoslavia, for those who are interested. 
My first memory is not being able to play on the grass because they'd sprayed it with a chemical in case the Chernobyl cloud came over that would keep the grass green. So my initial memories were being resentful at communism for not being able to let me play on the grass. Uh, and so we lived in, uh, in Belgrade, in London, and in Ottawa, Canada for four very cold years from when I was in high school. And interspersed between those, we did a couple tours in the States. Okay. So was there any chance going to college, coming out of college, you were not going to work in some form of foreign policy or national security? You know, it's one of those things where I feel like, so diplobrats, as we call ourselves, mm -hmm. come out in very two distinct flavors. They're the people who absolutely love the lifestyle and want to continue it forever, and those who absolutely hate it. There's very little middle ground, I find, in the people that were brought up that way. So for me, I, you know, love the idea of living abroad. I love the idea of having to interact with people who didn't understand things that are to us just fundamentally American um, that we would take for granted, but they don't sort of understand why we would see that way. Those are the little kind of nuances that I really appreciated. So I was eager to look for a profession that would allow me to do something like that. And I found covering this beat in journalism is uh, fitting the bill nicely. Excellent. Um, I'm curious your evolution of thought, your perspective on, on these issues over time. How much has, has your job change the way you, you know, you feel about these issues when you're voting on them, you know, if you were to sit down and write an op-ed, mm -hmm. right, irrespective of your reporting, being around it all the time, talking with the people who are making the decisions that are guiding our country's policies, you know, doing the, the investigative part, the research part, yeah. how much of your job changes the way you feel about something from how you felt at 8 a.m. versus 6 p.m.? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's the classic metaphor that we use in D.C. so much about you don't want to see how laws and sausages are made. That whole idea of seeing behind the curtain and looking at, for example, what it goes into getting the QDR, the Quadrennial Defense Review at the mm -hmm. Pentagon, um, planning for Afghan strategy. Just being able to see more behind the curtain of the things that go into it definitely changes your perspective on these things. I was privileged to go to Afghanistan last summer and get to meet some of the people who were on the ground enacting the policies that we decide here in D.C. That completely changed the way that I look at the beat that I cover now. It's no longer looking at ethereal ideas that then go out the door and it's on to the next problem to solve. That's when I really saw what happened when those policies go out the door. Um, I think the other thing that's really uh, affected the way that I look at national security and defense is that I think particularly in this country, particularly with the way that the war has been gone in the last decade and who's fought it, we tend to think that it's fairly black and white in terms of the mm -hmm. kinds of people that support the war and the kinds of people who don't, in terms of their demographics, their backgrounds, how much they get paid to do their work. And I've been surprised to find that that's really not the case. You get people who really come from a very varied background, who have very different views on why we're doing this, how we should do it, how much money we should spend on it, who should be there. But they all have the common goal at the end that is the same. And that really surprised me. I didn't consider that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's, I think our listeners have surmised by now, if we haven't already told them, that I spent a year working in the West Bank for the Israeli Ministry of Defense. And, you know, I went there having a certain perspective. I came back having a much more varied perspective on the issues. And it, it gave me both optimism on certain issues, and it gave me a certain sense of fatalism on others, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's sort of, I, uh, the word I'm thinking is burdened, but that's not exactly right. But it sort of burdened me since then mm -hmm. 
when looking at the uh, the debate in the U.S. on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know, sometimes or oftentimes there's this oversimplification that's driving people towards opinions that I think are sort of fundamentally wrong because they're they're not understanding the complexities. But on the other end of the perspective, right, there's the idea that there's this burden of knowledge that if you know too much, you get caught up in the details, mm -hmm. right? And then there's just no movement, and the good becomes the enemy or the the of the better, of the perfect. Mm -hmm. um, as you cover your beat, right, and you learn more about the nuances of each thing, do you feel like the decision-making process tends to get burdened or slowed down when people involved know more? Let's let, let's say we're talking about sort of internal decisions on a Pentagon level mm -hmm. versus legislation passed in Senate Armed Services. Yeah. Right, where you're talking, even though most of the people on Senate Armed Services are fairly knowledgeable people. They have backgrounds working in, in the DOD, have backgrounds fighting wars. They're in a position now where they can't burden themselves with the details. Mm -hmm. Do you see much of a difference between decision-making processes on the detail level in the Pentagon versus on the Senate? And, and do, you, do you see sort of pros and cons to each one? I'm just curious your reaction to... Well, I think it's interesting sort of looking at so all those people are designed to serve somebody, right? Whether it's the Senate is serving their constituents, whether it's Secretary of Defense who's serving the armed services who he has to represent to the president. I think I would like to believe that that is chiefly what shapes these people's decision. And I think that's probably what accounts for many of the, of the mistakes that we make. You look at all of these services, particularly when you break it down to the service branches. You know, there's been this big discussion recently about how big the Army should be, for example, and whether they should turn over a lot of that a responsibility to the National Guard, for example, some of the things that are sort of less kicking in doors and more kind of working with local communities that maybe can go to somebody who's not being paid full time. Just an example, but it's a good one, I think, because it shows how even if it's a good idea, the chief of staff of the army is never going to seat that because his responsibility is to look after his guys, his troops, right. the <clears throat> army of the United mm -hmm. States. So he needs to make sure that um, he's advocating as 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 hard as he can for them. And I think sometimes when you have that in mind, it restricts your ability to really do what's best for the overall picture. Same when you're looking at senators. You know, we've been at war now for 13 years. I think this is probably the drawdown. Well, this, this drawdown is different in that I think people understand what's happening so much more than they have in any previous war, not in the least because people are more educated, but I think that the media has allowed people to learn about what's happening more. Um, so you have to weigh the balance between a populace that's tired of killing people in Afghanistan, but also one that doesn't want to repeat the mistakes that we made before we went into Korea, for example, with an army that was not ready to go there, right. coming home from Vietnam, and we left an army that we didn't really want anymore and had to then rebuild throughout the Cold War. I feel like these are all the lessons that we're trying to grapple with today. So this is a very long-winded answer to your... <laughs> To your to your question, but I think I I, I I do sort of see where these people are coming from, and I don't envy the position that they're in in terms of what sure. we do now. Well, long on this podcast, long windedness is definitely preferable to <laughs> win beggary. Yes or no, it's also <laughs> right. That's right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Plead the fifth. I'll tell you what. Let me. I, I want to pick up on your cons and your your sort of concept here of constituencies, right? And talk about the big, and sort of open this up for more of a, a holistic discussion here. Talk about the sort of the big ongoing debate in Washington, right? Yeah. About what role the U.S. should be playing internationally. Mm -hmm. 
right? Should we be this this big bad leader, or should should we be the um the you know the benevolent team player? Um, and what kind of financial material uh, resources is that going to require, mm -hmm. right? Um, I feel like for maybe the first five, six years of the, of the Obama administration, the differences in foreign policy between the conservatives and, and, uh, and the liberals in Congress, and certainly between the Republicans um, and Obama, uh, were fairly minor. Um, but I certainly feel like, at least over Ukraine, right, and over Syria. Mm -hmm. um, and that was already the breaking point. With Syria, was Syria, right, yeah. yeah. Um, that the gap is sort of open now. So from your perspective, you know, based on you know, the reporting that you do and the people you talk with, who is sort of winning? So I, I, I sort of break it down along along three lines, right? There's the, there's the public debate, mm -hmm. and then there's the policy debate, and then there's the budget one. Yeah. You know, sort of where are we at in those, in those three different debates on this issue? Well, God, I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Maybe we could three minutes. Yeah, right. Right. yeah exactly. Okay. I mean, I think, you know, with all of these decisions, I don't think that we can say it enough that none of them are easy, you know, and everybody has the gift of hindsight. When looking at, just say, Syria, for example, or Ukraine, um, it's not like there was ever an obvious choice for the president to make in terms of what to do there. You know, he was elected on a mandate of coming home from war. The idea of even the perception of going back to what could be war in a Middle Eastern nation like Syria, I think he figured it was probably unpalatable. And I think he probably figured that's not what he was in the office to do. He mm -hmm. was sent to Washington on the idea of bringing our guys home. Mm -hmm. I think, though, when you look at it in retrospect, it's pretty clear that what we did was wrong, if only because the situation is just so much worse now. And again, I'm not pointing fingers here, but you just look at just the horrible turmoil that's been going on there now, well into the third year. 150,000 civilians have died, or people have people yeah, have died, least, I guess, yeah. at least that we know of, that the UN has has been able to record. I think it's 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 pretty clear to see that that what we were doing there, that, that what or perhaps what we haven't done there, was was not the right the right decision. I think that the hardest thing looking at these conflicts is that when you when you when you see them throughout history, it was always through the vision of some sort of global struggle whether it was the Cold War or whether it was fighting Nazism before that or whether it was the uh, European empires before that, there was always something that offset the power that a country like ours was able to project. That was but able that to... framed the... Yeah, that. right. So how comforting is it now that Putin's putting us back into a Cold yeah. War mentality? Well, and that's what I'm saying yeah. is that I think that, you know, whereas before we had the Cold War where we were able to kind of inch toward a goal like trying to achieve something in Syria and we'd meet some resistance and that kind of offset it. Now we don't have that anymore. We're the most powerful country in the world by far. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're used to kind of having this natural competitor elsewhere that can sort of offset what we're doing. I don't think that we have it anymore. I think Putin's laughing if he thinks that we're going to have uh, another Cold War in the classic sense of it. Mm -hmm. Well, and President Obama has, been, has said repeatedly, we're not doing that. Yeah. But then that sort of raises a second, uh, you know, a, a related question, which is this sort of, because um, I agree with you, obviously, President Obama, as an elected commander-in-chief, was elected on a a pledge that, you know, there would essentially be no more. Not only were the wars that were going on at the time, were going to be, you know, there was not going to be much more of those, but also there was an implicit idea, well, there would not be mm -hmm. more of them. Yeah. And that is something that it for better or for worse, he is held to. Yeah. Um, but the way that he sort of um, 
inherited this sort of legacy of what well, I, I, that he seems to feel that he needs to make clear that that there's a limit to that. Yeah. Look, mm -hmm. I we have a problem here, and we're going to address all the possible options. We're definitely not going to get involved militarily, but here are all the other options. It's sort of a very clear sort of like showing of the hand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think that that sort of constrains his decision making and, and the effectiveness of the you know the you know, the policy making that he has? I mean, I think so, it's a very good point. I mean, I think you know for whether or not he intended it to, he came to the White House on the idea that he's going to bring peace with him. Right. And then he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, so that seemed mm -hmm. to be confirmed. Right. <laughs> this is the right. guy that's going to bring peace into our lives. And again, it's 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 very easy to say they're going to be able to do all these things. And just from what everybody has said, it's an entirely new world once you get into the White House and all of a sudden you're faced with these decisions that you have to make. Um, so I think that you're right. I think that he has sort of hampered himself by, as you say, kind of playing his hand first and saying that we're not going to have any sort of military engagement. A lot of the people that I've been that I've spoken to, and I'm I'm not a military tactician, so I won't sort of weigh in on on my opinion here. But what I keep hearing from people is that there's an awful lot that we can do between doing nothing with our military right. mm -hmm. and the 82nd Airborne jumping in on Moscow. Like there's right. a lot of things that we can do that would at least make people feel better, like we're there and we're helping. It may, it may not even be the military necessarily. It could be some other form of our foreign policy arm, USAID sure. or, you know. Those sure. Well, I mean, the one arm of foreign policy that Obama has leveraged, I would argue, more successfully than any other president in history, right, is sanctions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's... The Treasury has sort of become a key foreign policy making it has. It doesn't get nearly the credit yeah, it deserves for this, yeah. right? But I mean, I remember sitting in grad school talking about sanctions as just this weak instrument that had never worked before. And this is mm -hmm. back in 2010 when they were just setting up the regime against, against Iran. And I think, you know, the next international relations theory book that gets written on sanctions will point to what the U.S. and its allies have done with Iran yeah. as an exception or breaking from history on that issue. And so... You know, when we talk about the most current foreign policy issue, we talk about Ukraine. I think I think Obama is is sort of banking on the success he's had with Iran mm -hmm. on sanctions, not only as perceived by our allies who are going to participate, but also among the American public that he can essentially satiate any concern America Americans might have over, you know, an empowered Russia or yeah. a weakening Ukraine by going forward with, you know, fairly rigor rigorous sanctions. But I think the trouble with that is, I mean, you know, look at how long it took for the sanctions mm -hmm. to really take effect in Iran. I mean, it wasn't just what, the, what this president did, it's what previous presidents sure. did, and other countries came around and it slowly wore the country down to coming to the negotiating table. Now, we're not actually home safe yet. You know, there's still a, a lot of work to do, I think, to prove that the Iran sanctions worked to actually accomplish mm -hmm. something, not just bring them to the to the uh, negotiating table. But I think that's sort of the part of the problem with this, is that particularly when you're looking at one sovereign nation sending troops into another sovereign nation and seizing um, territory, that responding with something that, even if it's the right decision, but won't really show it as such for months, maybe even years to come, seems like a tepid response. And I can understand, perhaps, why it would seem as though it's a tepid response. Mm -hmm. But all of those other options, you know, what's it, sanctions, diplomacy, mm -hmm sort of long-term international you know, aid of the kind that we sort of tried in Afghanistan, they're all very lacking in photo ops, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well, and they're also very co-optable 
mm-hmm. by our quote-unquote enemy in this situation, right? I mean, yeah, and even by a lot of allies. Well, were, by allies as well. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, look, the you know, it's the sanctions regime in Iran for as against Iran as successful as it's been in terms of getting them to the negotiating table. They're clearly breaking down now along commercial lines. Mm-hmm. At, at the first possible moment that it was sort of, you know, PR feasible. Yeah. Right? I mean, the European Europeans are rushing back into the Iranian economy. You know, in the energy industry, I know Obama has been talking to the CEOs of the major, you know, of, of the oil majors saying, you know, mm-hmm. I could hammer you a lot more hard domestically than I have been. So let's forget about Iran for a while. Yeah, right. But... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's breaking down quite quickly, and it's over these commercial interests, and I think the one thing that we have sort of to, to hang our hats on this time around with Ukraine is, as Steve and I were discussing earlier, as much as we have commercial interests in Russia, the Europeans, who have, have essentially existential interests, mm-hmm. yet many of them seem to be very willing to, to push forward sanctions that will inflict significant pain at home. Right. If you think of Germany, major trading partner with Russia. Mm-hmm. The Baltic states, all very you know, energy dependent on mm-hmm. Russia. Poland, same thing. Even Britain, there was a lot of talk early on about, you know, well, Britain can't really afford to push Russia too far on this because mm-hmm. Russian oligarchs own football and, uh, and most of London. And uh, you know, there's a lot of exposure to Russian assets in the city of London. They have all been sort of at this point. None of them have balked about pushing for the hardest. Right. You know, they've mm-hmm. been very hawkish, except for the French. The French, on the other hand, yes. A well, we've talked quite uh, quite a lot in, on this podcast about Swallow <laughs> Long. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it, yeah. I mean, I have this own sort of little pet fascination because I put together a profile of him for a right. former boss years ago. Yeah, but um, my assumption is he's just. He's just exhausted from all the stuff. He's also a French politician, which just makes him great material. That's right. Absolutely. Inherently. In in relatively sensible terms, he's facing municipal elections at home Mm -hmm. where the far right are doing extremely well. Right. Which must be extremely terrifying to him (laughs) right now. Right. Well, Um, and to many of us, too. He must have exhausted, as sort of a veteran France watcher, I had no idea that he could do this many interesting things. He must just be exhausted by yeah. this point. He just must must want to climb into like a. He must want to go into hibernation. Right? <laughs> um, but France also, yeah. I mean, they in comparison with Britain, they're exposed to more risk from Russian assets, and they yes. have a much smaller, less diverse banking sector. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they really are. I mean, they no, if they push these sanctions too far, they do run risks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, think, and the French automotive industry is very integrated into, right. the, into the Russian market as well. So. I think they, there's a possibility with his sort of aggressive action on Mali, his aggressive action on um, the Central African Republic, mm-hmm. he, he might just be sort of at a, a point of where he's reached the, his full sort of bandwidth on doing anything apart from apparently bedding as many women as <laughs> possibly can. And good luck to him on that. With that, we'll take a quick break and then we'll, we'll come right back.
Uh, following on from that seamlessly, <laughs> something that we had discussed talking about a little while a while ago, and we're sort of already talking about a little bit. In this day and age, um, in an incredibly information rich, th well, this is the way I've been thinking about it. Sure. I've been talking about doing. An incredibly information rich environment these days, especially in DC, but I mean, pretty much anywhere. Um, and I would say, you know, more so than any time since probably World War II, in an environment where there are more people who have had some kind of access to high level decision making. Think about the, essentially the sort of post Iraq generation of people, especially in the US, um, who have in one way or another, had some part of their life affected by foreign policy decision-making, defense-oriented decision-making, mm -hmm. and the fact that basically every other building in D.C. seems to be a think tank. <laughs> basically, and everyone's a pundit. If you yes. have a Twitter account yeah. and a map, you can be a pundit. Everyone seems to have some kind of feeling. Apparently, everyone's feeling and, and opinion on this is pretty much equal. Some sort of critique of decision-making at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what what constitutes successful foreign policy-making in, in the 21st century? I wish we were C-SPAN, we could take calls right now. I yeah. know, yeah, yeah. yeah. From, the, right now. from the conservative line. And so that's right, from the peanut gallery. about Muslims. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's an interesting point. You know, you look at sort of the end of World War II and you look at, at where we are now, and they really couldn't be more polar opposites in terms of sort of where the country is, where our attitudes are. And you have to wonder, are we ever going to have a ticker tape parade again in New York City? Is, is that mm -hmm. going to happen with our boys coming home from the front? But has, has Snooki got married? <laughs> that's true. Is that, I feel like Actually, I believe she has. Be yeah. still my beating heart. So we yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, based on the sorrow I'm experiencing, <laughs> I believe she is now taken. Let's pour out that ceremonial <laughs> tequila shot. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, right? So... Uh, and, and, you know, this isn't, well, I guess it is, right? So I, I, I wrote a piece today on my, my <laughs> blog no, on the economy, where I talked about how basically the current sort of economic state of this country is precluding a lot of Americans from believing in a robust foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there is the economic component, which is what I wrote about, which says we're making a lot less money these days. Mm -hmm. And foreign policy is costing us a lot more. And the fact that the trend that matters more to us is going the opposite direction of the other one, um, you know, is, is a particular challenge. But I think a large part that, that, I, didn't, that I didn't discuss in that article is that, you know, America, Americans for the most part are used to, up until the Great Recession, success, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we've, we've had failures along the way. I mean, you know, and it's, it's naive to think that we didn't have this great sort of war weariness after Korea, after Vietnam, right, where things didn't maybe go as well as, as we wanted them to, but nevertheless, Americans sort of presume we are the great power, um, and therefore, if we're going to put our mind and our money behind our actions, um, that disconnect there is very much reflected in the fact that we no longer think we're getting as much out of our foreign policy as we used to. So our bang for our buck, our return on our investment, right, is not essentially worthy of of the upfront investment to begin mm -hmm. with. Um, and I think that's a strong reflection on the fact that for the last 13, 14 years, most Americans, most Americans perceive our foreign policy to be somewhere between ineffective and a failure, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
we were we were told to expect certain things from the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, very little of which has materialized in a way that most Americans believe. Um, um, and as that's happened, our power, that sort of pride we have in being, you know, the dominating power in the world, uh, has taken... I like that you said dominating and not dominant. That, that's well, that, Freudian. Well, that, well, domineering. Domineering, <laughs> sure, but well, I think it's portenting sort of where I'm going with yeah. this, right? Which is, if we can't be the best, we don't want to, I guess at this point, pretend that we are. And I wonder if, you know, so on the strength of that, I, I would take exception with one thing that you said earlier, Stephen, about how this is a time when we have been more involved than we have been before. Because I think that, I feel like a lot of the country doesn't feel like they're involved. I feel like they they feel as though they're sort of spectators in what we're doing now. You know, I think about sort of in World War II, you hear those stories about the kids who were collecting cans to mm. turn into scraps. They could send it to the boys up on the front lines and make bullets mm. for them. That might have never actually happened that way. And I think that there are some studies that prove that it didn't actually amount to any sure. sort of recycling or conservation. But at least those kids felt like they were doing something, right? Yeah. They had been asked by their government to help. And they could do something. And that made them feel as though they were participating in what we're doing. I think the most recent numbers is like 0.6% of the population is served in uniform. Yeah, I mean, it's it just a completely a insignificant oh, number. Yeah. Right. And, he, and it's from a very distinct part of our country, too. It's right. not a lot of very urban urban people, no, certainly not affluent sure. people who live in, and, in the And suburbs. even when you send it out to people who have family who are in the military, it's still a percentage of something like 3 to 5%. Yeah. It's very small. And I think about, you know, right after September 11th happened, and I, and I think that this particularly resonated with me because I was abroad at the time. I was in Canada. And I remember that press conference that President Bush had where I think somebody even asked him, you know, what can the American people do? And his response was, we'll go out and shop. Right. Um, President Obama gets elected on this idea that I'm going to lead you into the promised land. And then I've talked to a lot of people who organized for him who felt kind of disenfranchised afterward. Because basically his response to this army of young people who had gotten him elected was, thanks for that. I'll probably need your help again in four years. But until then, you know, mm -hmm. have, have a good time. And I feel like there hasn't been the sense of our leadership. And perhaps it's their expectation of us as people who live in America, that we're not up to being asked to do something. But I feel like that's kind of changed the way that we've seen the world, is that it's no longer we Americans are doing something, it's they in Washington are doing something. Or, or nothing. Or... Yeah, well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think maybe there's a distinction between sort of involvement and, and meaningful involvement. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a... Um, Everyone sort of, you know, like it became, I, I noticed this from the second that I first touched down in, in the U.S. in 2004, this sort of the cult of the troops mm. that is, it's, it's, it has always been sort of quite un, unreflective of who the troops were or what they were doing. It's just, it's a very sort of, it's the flag and here are the troops and you respect the troops and if, it, if someone in uniform gets on a train or a plane that you're on, that's you give your seat to them immediately. Yeah. That that I think there may be. You're absolutely right that in terms of actual meaningful interaction with that, it, it's it is probably a lot smaller than it feels. But I think there is a. There's been a wider buy-in that people are sort of willing to take on. Mm. Actually, doesn't really necessarily impact their lives. Mm. Um, but that people are sort of very certainly. I imagine in the early stages of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, those right. people were very willing to take that on. Did it really have much impact on their lives? No, I imagine. Well, so what I'm hearing here is there's a, a, a distancing between most Americans 
and those who are making the decisions in Washington, and those who are fighting the wars, mm-hmm. right? And by fighting the wars, I also don't just mean the troops. I think that you know extends to the diplomats and to even people serving in the Peace Corps, for example, who I right. think are all kind of our faces abroad. These are all the Americans that we send out of our doors and say, go be us elsewhere. Right. It but there's like also, I mean, the, the part of the point that I, I was, I didn't very, make very well was... What'd you say? <laughs> the stuff. The stuff. <laughs> the stuff. And the troops, <laughs> and the flag, flag troops, and the, and the eagle, and, yeah, and the eagle. Springsteen, <laughs> and, the, and the Bud Light. And the, and the but Bud then Light. actually, I mean, the, the point I was making about the comparison to World War II is I think, comparatively, there were a lot more people overseas mm-hmm. then. But here, the, the what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, but yeah. what we would just call it sort of the defense yeah. sector now, right. establishment, is... Yeah. is it's much, much larger. And yeah. I, again, like I've lived a fair amount of the time that I've been in the, this country in, in the DC area. So well, you've also been on the Eastern so, Seaboard the whole time. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Which is. With, with, a, with various trips to places like Kansas. Um, I have no idea what's going on out there. <laughs> um, it seems to be a ranch dressing based economy as far as I can <laughs> work out. Much a tornado, um, yeah. <laughs> it's delicious and wonderful. But, we uh, just offended. Well, no one yeah, just, us, yeah. but well, my great aunt was from there, so I can get away with saying that. <laughs> I mean, I had a wonderful time. I spent yeah. a lot of time there. Um, uh, but the the, the 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 sort of defense industry also, I mean, it, the number of people who are involved in this world, but who never even set foot outside the continental United States, is also massive. Mm-hmm. The point I was making was that actually, it's sort of second or third degrees of people who were involved in this whole thing mm. um, who who were never asked to put set foot in harm's way in that regard mm. but who therefore you know they actually have a tangible sort of feeling if you're a, I, I don't know, just an admin person who works for a defense contractor who you know so that it's been outsourced and outsourced and outsourced to the point where you are so uh, tangibly involved in defense policy making or foreign, foreign policy making you never really get a say in it Mm-hmm. But you can tangibly came to be involved in a way that past generations wouldn't have been unless they were conscripted, essentially. Unless, of course, you move to Hong Kong and then Russia, and then you get to say whatever you want to. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what a wonderful life you have. Yeah, yeah right. You yeah. live in the right. wonderful free republic right. that is the Fed- Russian Federation. <laughs> so, yeah, let's not lose sight about the um, the foreign policy win here. Yeah. I find this very interesting, but I want to make sure we get, we, we actually get back to that uh, in a direct way. There was actually something that jumped out at me that I noticed in the news recently that I wanted to put forward, if I may, as a, a, a tiny case study okay. of what I think a foreign policy win means in 2014, which yeah. was a couple of weeks ago when Navy SEALs boarded the, mm. the, Lib- tanker, the tanker coming yeah. 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 from Libya, yeah. from a rebel-held port in, yeah. in Libya, yeah. with a North Korean flag, and... That to me seemed, when I read it, like an emblematic of what about as much as you can call a foreign policy. That's actually, it's actually really ironic because the king I was going to point to was Captain Phillips. Oh, interesting. Right. Can I just jump in with a quick factoid here? Total, yeah. total, total sidebar. As long as you don't call it a factoid, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and a mini fact. So, and this is only something that I've learned from being in in the briefing room. Whenever Navy SEALs conduct an operation. If it stays in the news for about two or three days, eventually the Pentagon will seed and say that it was either a West Coast SEAL unit or an East Coast SEAL unit, because they will never specify which actual SEAL team conducted the raid. 
when they never come out and say that it was either West Coast or East Coast, it might mean that it was a certain particularly secretive unit that may have been involved in killing bin Laden that they will never Ooh. give actual huh. details about. So just just sort of an interesting the, little kind of the, look at the yeah. news here. The Kansas, that they the have they have stuck yeah. with that's right that they have stuck with the idea that it is just a Navy SEAL unit. It was probably SEAL Team Six huh. or Dev Gru as they call it. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Huh. Yeah. yeah. But I'm sorry, that was an example. No, of, but actually oh. that that I, I think points to maybe the best example in the Obama era of a fallen policy fallen port. Foreign policy win. Nice time. Right, which is the nice. the killing of Bin Laden. That's right. Public enemy number one, not just in the U.S. but in much of the West. Yeah. Um, but you know, the example that Wiccan brings up, the Captain Phillips, the Bin Laden thing, it'd be hard to argue against those not being foreign policy wins mm -hmm. because the objective is simple. Right. And the analysis of whether it was meant is binary. Mm -hmm. Right. In most foreign policy, you don't get the luxury of any of that. Yeah. Right. So. Would you rather he was still, yeah, I mean, it goes down to, would you rather he was still alive? Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. So I guess you could take that, that sort of simple approach and say, okay, Ukraine, are we glad it went to Russia or not? No. Okay. It's a loss. Mm -hmm. Right. But there, there, there are more considerations because in the long run, a lot of Americans would argue that our relationship with Russia is more important than who governs mm -hmm. Crimea, right? Um, I would doubt most Americans could tell you who governed Crimea before this incident came up. Right. I don't know that I would have been able to give a hard and fast answer. No. Right, right. I mean, other than sort of who had national sovereignty yeah, right, over exactly. it, you know, it's... Hey, what you wouldn't get a straight on. They have their own like, like, right. sub-parliamentary system as well. So I mean, it's right, just, you know. right, right. I mean, you know, in, in in the episode before this, we had our friend Brian here, who, frankly, knows more about sort of the cultural aspects of that part of the world than Stephen or I do. He's a native Crimean. Oh, native. well, he has a bit of an advantage, I guess. That's kind of unfair, right? <laughs> We're saying Brian's a native Crimean. Uh, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> he talks. He has a very he has a very deep voice. <laughs> was he recording this, or were you guys? You might have got took last week. <laughs> That's right. Aaron vouched for it. That's right. <laughs> well, we Skyped him in, and we did it without right. the visual. He was wearing a balaclava. <laughs> Should have been your first time. And he referred to it as such, which was right. the real, real giveaway. Right. right. Um, but, I mean, that is the difficulty that we're grappling with yeah. here, is we don't have... A clear-cut example, you know, yeah. the binary question. And I think that all the examples that we've, that we've given are, are good ones in that they were clear-cut, distinct wins in our minds, similar mm -hmm. to signing an armistice agreement on, mm -hmm. on a train. The, acceptance, or the difference is that there wasn't that back end to it. You know, I don't think that, you know, saving Captain Phillips was sort of the culminating moment of a decade long of fighting Somali pirates. Right. Just as to be honest, I don't know that killing bin Laden was really the culminating moment to what who we've been fighting 10 years before. I mean, that's kind of right. the point of the enemy was that they're an idea. They're not forged behind right. a person. And hey, we're still in Afghanistan. And right. Probably could still have been in Iraq if we were still right. there. Right. Well, in hindsight, well, I mean, hindsight has shown that <laughs> signing an armistice in a train in 1914 you know, yeah. did not stop. Right. What was coming right. afterwards. I mean, yeah. again, like, you know, his, history will show how all of this works right. out. I think in a world in which especially comparatively we have a lot more non-state actors driven by non-state imperatives mm -hmm. right. it becomes even harder because right. an ideology can mutate especially if it's an ideology like Islamism that can mutate 
right. across state yeah. borders. Well, let's 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 let's, let's 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 talk through an example here. Then let me throw out the sort of reestablishment of our relationship with Russia, mm -hmm. right? When Obama came into office, the reset, the reset, right? We had an agreement on New Start. We had. We had the supply lines through Russia sort mm -hmm. of guaranteed as much as you can count on a Putin guarantee, right? Every single drop of oil our troops use, or gas our troops use in Afghanistan comes from Russia. Right, exactly. Um, at the time, the priorities that the Obama administration set for those negotiations for that reset, as far as I know, came to fruition in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Now we see this. The way... Obama's detractors are presenting all of this is the reset was a waste of time because we have lost Crimea and potentially Ukraine. Now, on a very sort of top PR campaign ad, you can make that jump, mm -hmm. right? We've lost the 51st and 52nd states. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And I won't say right, I'll say sure. Um, but in the long run, and this is the thing, history will bear this out, what will be the bigger sort of, what will have the bigger impact? The loss of Crimea or the gain of New START? Right? The continued supply lines through Russia to our, to our operations in Afghanistan, um, or, right, the sort of removal or the sort of switch from Ukraine and the, under the Western umbrella back to right, the, the Russian sphere. It's an interesting question because I think, you know, throughout this entire period, by the way, we're still relying on the Russians to get to the International Space Station. So it's a good example of how I think that, you know, we're always going to have relations with the Russians in some way. We can't afford not to. They take up all of Asia pretty much, right? Like, we, the question is whether we can do it out loud, I think. I was talking to a couple of people recently who were making a strong distinction between Russians and between Soviets. And I think it's an interesting point to make because there are a lot of people, these ethnic Russians that Putin keeps talking about protecting, who couldn't be more happy to now be Estonian or Lithuanian or, or a Ukrainian or Georgian, but they're very much in touch with their Russian roots. Then there are the Soviets, the ones like, I think, President Putin, who has said the end of the Soviet Union was the worst tragedy of the 20th century, who want to go back to a time that frankly didn't ever really exist, but they think that that's sort of the goal to have in the future. So... I would imagine that we must still have people who have senior levels of government to whom in Russia to whom we can talk to clearly and get past all of these things. The question is, can we do it out loud? Right. Well, the question is, do they, are they still allowed to? Well, that will write. That's it. Right. Yeah. Are they allowed to talk to foreigners? Yeah, right. Well, you know, so like it was tense enough when Putin and Obama met at the, at the last summit. There are those great pictures of the two of them looking really icy at uh, one another. You can only yeah. imagine what the next one is going to look like exactly. right. if there if 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 there ever is a next one. Mm -hmm. We'll find out, probably. <laughs>
All right, we're back after another, another seamless cut to, to non-commercial break. Very That's nice. why they pay me the producing big bucks. <laughs> That's right. We're at about 48 minutes now. I thought we would kind of wrap things up with... You're doing, you're doing commentary on the, on the commentary. Yeah. It's very meta. Yeah, it is very meta. Yeah. Well, we used to work a lot with metadata. That's right. Hashtag big data. <laughs> um, I thought it'd be fun if we ended with sort of a prediction on where what's going on in Ukraine with Russia is going in terms of will it turn out to be a, a foreign policy success for the West or a failure. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things to, to sort of consider here. There's the current sanctions that are in place, the potential sanctions that could come up in terms of energy, which would be, you know, almost existential to Russia and very crippling to, to the Europeans um, and not something that we here in America can help out with very quickly. Um, we have, you know, as much as it matters, the perception within Putin's mind of how successful he is. Right, in terms of how that empowers him in other countries, you know, that are sort of in the nearer Russian abroad. Um, we have the impact of what I think a lot of Americans are perceiving a weak foreign policy to be from Obama on on the, the upcoming twenty fourteen and twenty sixteen elections, um, on sort of what this means potentially on the, the long term strength and cohesion of NATO. Um you know, I guess sort of what are your assessments on what the important players are going to do and how it's going to work out? The word that I've been hearing a lot in the last couple of weeks is tripwires. Putin has not yet tripped any tripwires in Europe. And that means sort of most bluntly, it means he hasn't invaded, invaded a NATO signatory country, which would then be a tripwire, right? As soon right. as he steps foot in, in Estonia, his so-called unmarked, you know, local forces, but they're clearly Spetsnaz. As mm -hmm. soon as they go into Estonia, then we get to send in the 82nd Airborne. That's in our charter of what we're supposed to do. Right. Now, I think he's gone a lot farther than a lot of people thought he was going to. You know, looking at talking to people who know much more about this than I do in the last couple of weeks, it's been sort of one after the other of, oh, he would never actually send troops into Crimea. Well, here we are. So I think it's, it's just in, incredibly hard to predict what's going to happen. But with that in mind... He's pushing pretty hard. I think he's a you know good chess master with these kinds of things, but there are a lot of these tripwires around Europe, and I worry that it's going to extend beyond his control, perhaps even by accident. Mm -hmm. And that could lead somewhere that, that he doesn't have a plan for getting out of. Right. This is the this, you know, phrase you hear, like events on the ground. The events on the ground get out mm -hmm. under him. Yeah. Essentially, especially as you say, like when you send sort of unnamed, unidentified mm -hmm. paramilitaries into other countries, and they make contact with pro-Russian extremist groups who are already there, that, um, you know, there's a serious risk that things start to inflame. Mm -hmm. I think there was, you know, there's still a risk of that happening in Ukraine proper. Um, clearly, there, you know, the risk is there in, in Moldova and Transnistria. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Baltic states would be the other area, the other place that you would you know, look at, but there's still you know, risks about maybe North Kazakhstan, yeah. some of those kind of areas. I think, yeah, in terms of a, a win, I think given that President Obama has sort of already ruled out, he's already sort of put serious bounds on mm -hmm. what Military, he's willing to do. Yeah. And, I mean, again, I think tipping your hand in that way is maybe not sensible, but I don't think anyone is really 
particularly interested in sending Americans or Britons or Canadians or whoever else to die mm. in Moldova. Yeah. I don't think anyone... No, we didn't have to send this, so. Brits or Canadians or Americans to Bosnia, and we still got involved there. You know, I right. think there are a lot of options that don't involve our guys kicking in yeah. front doors. Right. Well, no, I will say the Canadians under or... this uh, under the Harper government with John Baird as his foreign minister, they won't be the first in, but they will be the second in. Yeah, right. we're going back to Aaron's long-standing love for Canadian politics. It's they got, fascinating. They got pretty it is slick fascinating. In, Af- in Afghanistan. They've yeah. got some serious guys in that kind They've of They've got game. They've got game. Yeah. It's been interesting watching Obama's, President Obama's change of rhetoric this week. It hasn't been a significant change, but that speech where he called Russia a regional, regional power, power that is yeah. only a threat basically to its immediate neighbors. Mm-hmm. You don't see that kind of trash talking coming out of him. You know, He's a very no. measured guy. He doesn't do these things off the cuff. Mm-hmm. That came from somewhere, and I wonder if he's looking to get a bit more swagger in his game abroad. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Actually, I, I kind of hope so. Uh, it would be good to see, because he's, a, I mean, yeah. yeah, it would be nice to see, for a lot of reasons, a little less restraint from him over the next couple of years. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I don't feel fear that sort of way that I did with there's not the fear that there was with Bush that you know, what lack of restraint leads you to is right. an entire world in ruins. Whereas, right. You know, uh, right. Well, it's interesting too, right? So, like, I, I brought up sort of a consideration here of 2014 and 2016 elections. My guess, and it's just a hunch at this point, that whoever the Democratic nominee in 2016 is going to be, <coughs> Clinton. Um, Sorry, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> Bill's coming back? <laughs> That they're going to be a, a more hawkish foreign policy Democrat. And I, 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 don't, I don't think the sort of swagger that Obama might be trying to create is, put, is calculated to help that nominee, but I think there's a bit of a, an umbrella that's already being provided from 2016 back to now by Clinton, or Biden, or whoever it is, but by Clinton, yeah. um, that gives him a bit of, of wiggle room here to do that. Yeah. Yeah, but I think she's she's the heir presumptive, but I don't think that's because she's more... No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying because she is the presumptive yeah. nominee, and she is more hawkish. It gives a bit of, of cover for Obama now, mm. in the last couple of years of his administration, to maybe be that way and not get beat up as much as he would have in his first four five, maybe six years, well, he is by, the more progressive, by the more progressive yeah. part of his party. And, and not have his likely successor come in on a sort of... On a, on a, a spend yeah. two years right. saying, while we're throwing all of this up. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, that's true. He has an interesting set of precedents, the president, because when you think about the military offensives that have been unique to this president, it's killing bin Laden, right, mm-hmm. and the drone campaign in Pakistan. Right. I think that existed before, but he's, he ramped it up incredibly, incredibly beyond what it was before. One of those was wildly successful. He got to enjoy a political bump. People flocked to Lafayette Park behind the White House and with posters and were chanting USA, USA. One of them has been probably one of the biggest political disasters of his career, right? Is this mm-hmm. idea of our essentially invading a sovereign nation and killing people at mm-hmm. will. So I think that he hasn't quite yet solidified his stance is what kind of a hard power president he can be. And I wonder if, if he's just going to kind of take the neutral stance on this and not do anything else, hopefully pass it on to, as you say, his successor, or if he's going to try to leave that kind of lasting impression that 
he knew how to use it well. Mm-hmm. Well, it also sort of comes back then to the, the question that we've managed to avoid thus far of, okay, say that, say that Putin stops at the Ukrainian border but continues to be economically, politically, diplomatically aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so essentially we have a sort of status quo. Right. Do sanctions continue? Do they harden? How much can they harden? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do we think that that will really have a mm-hmm. long-term effect? Is it going to change Russian decision-making? Is it going to roll and sure. back? And what sure. is the long-term relationship with Russia going to be sure. in that? Well, I mean, well, the Russian people can't feed themselves on nationalism. Right. You know? right. I think that right. eventually this is going to catch up to them. Right. This might not be as good. The answer to this is, is, is domestic Russia. Sold, right. Yeah. It's, right, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the national identity. And then it's how long can a dying country can continue to rely on a petroleum natural gas dollar. Mm-hmm. So then removing Putin and and, um, and his replacement with someone a little softer, does that constitute, to come back to our early question, a foreign mm-hmm. policy win? Mm-hmm. Well, it, certainly from the Obama perspective, and I'm dodging it with that, will qualify. <laughs> yes, because that's what the reset was supposed to be in the first place, yeah. right? It wasn't explicitly to to get rid of Putin, but it was supposed to be to empower, uh, I've heard his name pronounced a number of different ways, Medvedev. Medvedev. Yeah. Medvedev. 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 Yeah, Medvedev sons Putin. Is that? <laughs> that sounds like a... That sounds like a dish. It sounds yeah, like a French dish. It sounds like yeah. a dish, that's right, yeah. Delicious yeah. yeah. and potato. Perfect to me. But right. if you have a, a Medvedev who is without the without Putin's hand up his ass. Sans Putin. Right. No, like, in which case it's... Is that a... That, I I yeah, for, I, for I certainly, that must be much more yeah. comfortable physically. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I I would say that constitutes a success. Yes, because it is steering a potential, you know, enemy essentially in the opposite direction. Yeah. Okay. It'll be interesting to see though what the Russian people do, right? Yeah. Right. All that I think that they that they know that they don't want to be America is mm-hmm. what they all kind of grew up on, and I don't think that there's any real alternative. Yeah. In the meantime, mm. we'll see what, you know, France and a number of other European countries who also don't really want to be America, right? Right. Yeah. Well, they'll do. Right. Well, then. I think it behooves us to say thank you, Paul. Oh, yeah. Thanks Wonderful so Wonderful to have you with us. It was, this yeah. was really fun. Absolutely. I really enjoyed this a lot. Absolutely. We'll have to have you on again. I'd like There's that. a note of surprise in your voice that is totally expected. Yeah. Um, Aaron Menelberg, thank you very much. Stephen Wickham, thank you. We should we should pass around the uh, the Twitter handles and all of that because Paul yes. is yeah. n- no joke, someone to follow on Twitter. His reporting uh, for US News, um, definitely a very ambitious journalist I think in this town who who is um, professionally good looking guy as well. Yeah, exactly. It's been a very exactly. uncomfortable hour for me. <laughs> no, no, no. It was under six foot. It doesn't belong in a magazine to sit next to the two of you. Very, very, very um, but you are at, uh, at PD Shinkman. Yeah, PD Shinkman. It's my on mm-hmm. Twitter. I've gotten used to saying that on the phone because when I say Shinkman, people always spell it wrong. That's so. right. You have an email address on your Twitter yep. page, right? Yep. Make sure you email that email address and ask to be put on his weekly emails. Yes, weekly. Yeah, last Paul, Paul sends out uh, his work every week, and uh, it just saves you the effort of having to go out and find it yourself. That's and, right. And it, it ensures that you actually pay attention to it, too, which, believe me, is worth your time. Absolutely. Uh, we are at Podolithical Risk. Mm-hmm. Aaron is at Aaron Menenberg. Yes. I am at my house most of the time. <laughs> um, 
we're also on Facebook. Uh, Facebook.com slash slash political risk and SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash political risk. Mm -hmm. um, you can also email us, should you wish, uh, political risk at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, and that's all of them that I can think of. <laughs> no, Facebook? Facebook.com Facebook slash political risk. Yeah. We're definitely on there. Please like us. Instagram. LinkedIn. We can do. We're not. <laughs> we're not, on, we're not on LinkedIn. That's right. No, Newfangled or, or even more professional ones. <laughs> no. No, this is, really has to do with a minimal amount of effort required. Yeah, that's not what we're trying to do here. But. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>